And that knot is so big that it won't allow the salmon fly, it won't pass through the eye of the fly. But the fly can spin endlessly on the leader, which salmon flies do. Anytime you're fishing a big bushy dry like a salmon fly or a grasshopper or whatever, it's going to spin and cause your leader to get super twisted if it's tied directly to the leader. But this way I've got it basically the fly can swivel around the end of the leader. It can't come off the leader because the knot is stopping it. And the strength of that is 100%. That was Amy Hazel with a killer knot tip for your next big bushy fly pattern. Time to reorganize your fly box today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Uh, We are doing some live podcasts now uh, in uh, select weeks when we have time. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash live to uh, join the next, uh, find out when we're doing the next one. You can uh, come on stage and raise your hand and come up with the guests. So it's pretty cool. If you get a chance, check that out. Amy Hazel is here to break down the Chutes River trout fishing with a focus on the spring and early summer. Amy brings the good stuff today as we find out where, when, and how to fish the shoots given changing conditions. She shares a, a ton of good stuff, uh, resources on knots, flies, tips. Uh, pretty much we dig into it all today with a little bit of a focus on uh, kind of salmon flies, stone flies, um, but it's all there today. You're probably going to have to listen to this one a couple of times, so maybe try the 1.5 or 2x speed uh, for this one. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. TurtleBox is a new company I've been working with this year. They build an amazing portable speaker that is louder and more rugged than anything I've ever encountered. Unlike most other portable speakers out there, the TurtleBox was specifically built with a sportsman in mind. I've talked with the guys at TurtleBox, solid dudes by the way. They love the outdoors and are all avid sportsmen. This is a product I can truly say does not disappoint. Go ahead and check the guys out at TurtleBoxAudio.com. OPST's rods represent decades of dedication to sustained anchor two-handed casting. These rods are a true illustration of Skagit Master Edward's vision. The Micro Series comes exceptionally close to single-handed specs and is proving to be a unique tool for trout and smallmouth anglers alike. Head over to wetflyswing.com OPST to get started right now. That's wetflyswing.com OPST. So without further ado, here is Amy Hazel from DeschutesAngler.com. How's it going, Amy? Hey, Dave. I'm doing well. How about you? Great, great. Thanks for uh, uh, putting this together this morning. I know you just had your uh, COVID shot, and so did I, actually. I, did. I, I had mine yesterday as well. Yeah. Okay. I feel fine. I mean, I didn't sleep well, but I feel fine. So yeah. I, I don't think I'm going to have the fever and the aches and other things people have, but I was willing to have them just to get vaccinated. So Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, it's an interesting world we're in now. And it is. <laughs> we're, I mean, you guys obviously, we, maybe we'll dig into a little bit of the travel later as well, because I know you do a little bit of that, but I mean, it, travel's still shut down, right? I mean, down like South America, Canada. Yeah, most of it's shut down. Canada's shut down. Um, that's It'll be probably the second year that I don't get to do my uh, Canada trips and then... Uh, I was in, I was on Christmas Island on February 18th. Actually, it was February 19th, uh, 2020. It was in the plane, the last plane that left Christmas Island and they haven't had anyone in there since. So I've had 
several trips get postponed from there and we're going to try to get back there with an all women's group taking over the whole lodge in October. So that'll be fun. I hope they're going to open. Um, Sounds like they will be able to because they just have to vaccinate the island and they've had no COVID. So exciting for them to not have had to deal with this, but it's going to be, it's going to be strange traveling again. Yeah. Um, it but is. I'm looking forward to it, and, and the fish have had a nice rest. Exactly, exactly. Is the the all women's group? Do you set those up kind of like a hosted trip through your shop? Yeah, it was a hosted trip that I'm doing with Heather Hodson of United yep. Women on the Fly. Oh yeah, and we're we're good friends, so we decided um, we actually met on Christmas Island. Uh, Heather and and her husband Eric uh-huh. came to Christmas Island when I was hosting a trip there, and I met them at the airport because I was there for two weeks and. They showed up on week two, so that's cool. Cool, yeah, yeah. yeah Heather's awesome. I've had her on uh, in a, an episode along with Jan, and I know every chance I get, I always love to uh, make a note on United Women on the Fly because you know, yeah, that's a great, great, and, great in organization. Fact, in fact, last night we were doing we're doing these clubhouse. You probably don't want to hear about another app, but we're doing these live podcasts on this new this new app called Clubhouse, and it's pretty cool because you're able to bring people up on the stage, like people listening to to ask questions directly. Oh, cool. Um, okay, but uh, this one person was down in Northern California, and she was brand new. Uh, you know, a, a female angler, and she was just asking, "Where? How do I get started? Where do I go? I want to fish Northern California." And I, and I said, "Well, you know, there's some shops for sure. You got, you know, good shops, but also United Women on the Fly, right? That's a good resource. Yeah, yep, great resource. And um, yeah, there had there have been so many new anglers since the lockdown and COVID. It's been it's been a boom that I don't think any of us could have predicted. Um, it was pretty scary last year when, when we, you know, got yeah. shut down, our doors got locked wow. and, uh, and we had all these pre-seasons coming in, which is, you know, fly shops usually do pre-season orders where we order all the flies a year in advance or eight mm-hmm. months in advance, all the stuff we order in advance because waiters and flies and all that stuff, they have to be handmade and they want to have a prediction of how many we're, we're going to be able to sell. So a lot of shops, I think, were canceling all their orders because they're thinking, well, if we're locked down, we're not going to sell anything. Yeah. And we, we rolled the big dice and brought everything in. And nice. <laughs> it's been great because so we've cool. had stuff available to sell to all these new anglers. But, you know, we, we, we got lucky that it turned out to be one of our best years ever in the fly shop. Yeah. So. Yep, that's what that's what I'm hearing out there, and I mean rolling the dice. That's pretty awesome to hear. That's successful over the years. I mean, how long have you been in business now, the Shoots Angler? Um, the Shoots Angler we started in 2003. I um I came to work for John on the the Shoots in 1998, and uh, we a few years in, John came home one day and he said, "Guess what? I rented that." empty building in downtown we're going to open a fly shop (laughs) i was like really (laughs) so we we ended up opening the fly shop and it's grown it's probably quadrupled in size since then and yep um i ended up not guiding as much anymore just because it you know the fly shop kind of took over but it's been great yeah it's been really fun it's a great way to meet tons of people and yep it's a great way for me to keep my my guides employed all year round, which is important to me that they they're not just seasonal employees that they can make a real living in this industry, and that's that's yep. what we want. We want our team to stay intact. 
And that's cool. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, you guys are doing a good job out there. So, well, I want to dig in more on, obviously, we got uh, we could talk a little about John and everything you have going. And we're also going to dig into some trout, trout tips as well. But before we get okay, there, yeah. let's take us back because I know, uh, I'm not sure exactly where you came from. So where, how did you first, <laughs> tell me how you first got into fly fishing and, and all that. Well, I grew up in Minnesota and it might sneak out once in a while. My, my Minnesota accent might yep. sneak out once in a while, but I grew up fishing, but we didn't really have much in the way of fly fishing in, in Minnesota. There, like I had only really seen a fly rod a couple times at somebody's uh, log cabin up north where their grandfather had an old bamboo rod. But we, you know, I grew up fishing every day and riding my bike down to go fish all the, the ponds around our house in suburban Minneapolis. Hmm. And then, um, we, we got a summer cabin when I was about 13 and that gave me access to an old, uh, the, uh, the old Evinrude 15 horsepower oh, yeah. motor on the old, uh, 20, 1920s Lund fishing boat. <laughs> and that was my every day I'd go out and, and fish all day. And well, usually fish all morning. And then I would, you know, be a teenager and yep. pretend like I hadn't been out fishing all morning. All right. So. You had to hide it. Yeah. You had to hide it for a yeah. while. You had to hide it a little bit. But um yeah, that's 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 where I really developed the love for for fishing. And then it was in uh, college that I really got my greatest exposure to fly fishing because I went to school at Middlebury College, which is in Vermont. And Vermont is, you know, kind of the epicenter of all mm-hmm. things Orvis and fly fishing and the fly fishing museum and oh, yeah. all the, all the history there. And we had uh, the Middlebury River and Otter Creek running right through town. So, so I, I was introduced to a few people who who had some fly fishing experience and I caught my first trout and I was I was I was done. I never mm-hmm. went back to the spinning rod after that and uh, and here I am now. There, there so you go. There you yeah. Go. So so college so in so after college, how do you make your from college take us to how you re- land in, on the Deschutes? Well, it's pretty easy. So I, um, after college, I had worked really hard. I was an economics major. I got offered jobs on Wall Street, hmm. and I said, I, I am, I am, I need a, I need to take some time off, you know, because I've been a really dedicated student, and I wanted to take a year off just to do some things I wanted to do. So I jumped on a plane and went to Thailand for no yeah then I went to Thailand first and then I came my uncle lived in Thailand and he's he's married to a a Thai national and and so I went and stayed with them and learned a lot of Thai language and stuff Um, I lived with them for about four months and taught school at an international school in Thailand and then uh, making some bad 20 year old decisions i had a motorcycle crash and got 150 stitches in my face and knocked my teeth out and yeah had to had to have a lot of a lot of like micro stitching done in bangkok um and then flew back to phuket with a mummy wrap around my face and waited a few days to call my mom because i didn't really want her to i couldn't really talk because i'd kind of messed up my jaw so i wanted to you know, be able to talk when I called her. So called her and I was immediately, that was the end of Thailand for me and went home and, uh, you know, cuts and stuff. If, uh, if you've ever fished in the tropics and gotten a cut on your hand or something, you know, they don't heal in the Mm. tropics. And I was living in the tropics. So came home 
And I had already lined up a couple other gigs for my year off, uh, one of which was um, living and working in Jackson, Wyoming Mm -hmm. in the wintertime, skiing at at, um, Jackson Hole. I got a what they call a true shredder pass, and that allowed you to ski four days a week. You couldn't ski on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So me and a bunch of Dartmouth grads were cleaning (laughs) hotel rooms, and uh, on the the weekdays, weekends, we were cleaning, and then weekdays we were skiing and it was really fun and uh and then after that i i moved to central wyoming to a a ranch called the hf bar in saddle string wyoming and worked as a wrangler on a dude ranch so that was really fun and that's that ranch had creeks running all through it and they now have a fly shop on the ranch but when i was there um it was just the guests would come from the East Coast and they'd fly fish on these creeks. And that's where I was able to just fly fish every day and uh, absolutely got deep into it there and started uh, taking people on pack rides up into the mountains. And we'd fly fish and we'd catch all these golden trout and mm-hmm. rainbow trout and all this great. It was really fun. It was such a great summer. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to Seattle to get a real job. And uh, only lived in Seattle a couple of years before I moved down to Portland, um, where I started working for Outward Bound oh, yeah. in, in the Portland area and worked for Outward Bound for a couple of years. And then I had planned to do a trip around the world and I just packed up a backpack. And in 97 and 98, I spent uh, 15 months just traveling around the world, fly fishing in all the places I wanted to go. And um Started in New Zealand and worked my way around and ended up in Argentina um, for the last bit and um, hit. Well, I can name off all the countries because I used to get asked a lot. Oh, but yeah. I went to New Zealand, Australia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, Nepal, India, Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, France, Zimbabwe, Zambia, South Africa. Or, yeah, Zimbabwe, Zambia, South Africa, and Argentina. And that's wow. the order that I went. <laughs> so it was Great adventures, lots of fun. Glad I did it when I did it because I don't think I would try to do it now, not with uh, not yeah. with terrorism, not oh, with right. plagues and yeah. whatever else. So I was able to to do that trip and and experience the world and and see a lot of great places and fish in some really crazy places for some crazy fish and yeah and. Yeah, that's amazing. So was, that's amazing. That was fun. Well, that's so a, so that kind of brings us up. That was an awesome summary, by the way, and tons of <laughs> tons of stuff that maybe we could dig into on, on another podcast. But um, I want to talk about, you know, I, I, I'm not sure the seminal moment, but I mean, John comes into the picture. T- talk about when you first met John. Yeah, how that. Yeah, came to be. this was where we were going. I I got off that plane. I still had an apartment in Portland, which I had sublet while I was gone. I had a 1987 Land Cruiser parked in the garage, and I got home charged the battery on the old Land Cruiser and went to a trade show at the, uh, I think it was at the convention center. I I think that one was at the convention center or the expo center. I can't remember Mm -hmm. which, but that's where I met John. Um, I went to that convention center, expo center with like uh, a bunch of photos from my trip around the world like a total dork <laughs> and i was looking for i was looking for a job i wanted to oh, work cool. in, in fly fishing and so i went there and started talking with all these people who were in the industry and i didn't didn't really it was hard to do your research back then because there was no internet really mm. i mean the the internet was really in its infancy so you couldn't like look up who people were and 
and, you know, yeah. find out. So I met this guy um, in the CF Berkheimer booth. I met Carrie Berkheimer and John Hazel, who are real good friends. And John was actually up on the casting pond demonstrating spay casting. Mm-hmm. So this is when spay casting was pretty much in its infancy. John was the guy that kind of popularized it um, in North America, in, in the United States. Um, there was Mike Maxwell and Denise Maxwell up in Canada. And then John Hazel had the had everyone learning how to spay cast on the shoots in the 80s. And um, so this was late 90s, and he was still demonstrating spay casting on the casting pond. And I walked up there with a three-weight Berkheimer in my hand and asked him how much longer he was going to be doing this presentation because I <laughs> wanted to cast the three-weight. <laughs> so um, afterwards, um, well, he tells me now like that when he looked over and saw me, he said, I'm going to marry that girl. Oh, there you go. And, that's what that, that he had pretty big plans having <laughs> barely ever met me. But, um, he, at that trade show, he, I told him I was looking to buy a boat because I, I wanted to, um, to get a boat that I could use on the Deschutes cause I wanted to become a guide on the Deschutes. Hmm. And I had no idea how complex, how complex yeah. it is to become a guide, but he saw a woman who can fish and has, you know, has confidence and he thought I could hire a woman guide. And so he, he finagled his buddy to sell me a, a high drift boat at a really good price. It was a demo model. He was the mm. high drift boat rep. Uh-huh. And, uh, I got myself a high drift boat and John invited me to come out so he could teach me how to row it. And, uh, you know, the sexual harassment just huh. began right there. That was it. That was yeah, it. that was the it. I had history. to marry the guy eventually. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. <laughs> So, so it started, I mean, it's so cool. So you're out there looking for, to get into the fly fishing, you know, to become a yeah. guide and you meet probably, I mean, especially on spay, but Deschutes, I mean, probably the best person you could ever, ever talk to. I know I got pretty lucky there. So there was only one booth at the whole show that had fly rods and it was Berkheimer's. So, yeah, Berkheimer, yeah. um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to try out a three weight cause I had just traveled around the world with a six weight oh, RPL wow. plus and a yep. 10 weight RPL Jeez. plus. So I didn't have anything lighter than that. And, uh, I, I was really wanting to, you know, see what the industry was like. I actually ended up getting hired to work at a fly shop in Lake Oswego while I was at that show. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I also got, uh, I also got hired to spend the day on the John Day River shadowing a guide during a uh, during a steelhead trip to see how I liked that. And mm-hmm. that was John Eklund, who oh, yeah. who was who the sold, guy that sold he to, sold uh, his Marty, business to the shepherds. Marty yeah. Mia, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then uh, what was the shop in uh, Lake Oswego? That it was called it? Taylor Creek Outfitters. Oh, it was there. only a, yeah. no, it was only around for like a sure. year or two. The yeah. people. It was an Orvis shop, and the funny thing is, they wouldn't let me sell fishing gear. They wanted me to sell clothing, and I was <laughs> like, I don't know anything about clothing, but I know a hell of a lot more about fly fishing yep. gear than this clown that you have, no you know, running the yeah, the sh- yeah. But they wouldn't let me sell fly wow, fishing gear, and weird. I was spending every every weekend out on the Deschutes getting trained by John Hazel to become a guide for him, and I was like you got to be kidding me. Not. Yeah. So yeah, there yeah. was, there was a lot of sexism back still no kidding. back in that day. Yeah. And there was, when I started, when I was the only woman guide on the Deschutes, oh, wow. 
how has that changed, uh, you know, now, present day? Because, I mean, obviously there's the, a lot of the 50-50 and lots of cool things going yeah. on. Yeah, it's been great seeing um, the 50-50 kind of come to fruition and seeing so many more women in the sport. I don't think there's very many. I, I still don't think we have quite as many women guides. No. You know, but that's, it's, you know, there are some more now. I yeah. mean, the, on the Deschutes. And there are more across the country, which is fantastic. I think mm-hmm. women are great at teaching. We have great patience. Um, and other women feel much more comfortable when a woman is teaching. I mean, I've been teaching women's schools for, you know, 20 years out here. Yeah. I just, I call them the chicks with sticks schools <laughs> and we have a good time out in the water. Um, unfortunately COVID last year shut that down. And now, you know, I'm looking forward to getting back to having some women's schools because we always have such a good time and it's fun to see women really kind of come out of their shell if they're nervous or worried about about stuff you just say hey it's just fishing we're just out here having a great time yeah you know don't let's not take it too seriously that's that's the secret yeah yeah well, I mean, there's so many ways we take. I think the the space stuff. I'm gonna hold that until I can get John on later and talk because I mean, he he's you know obviously knows and George Cook I had on who did a little Northwest Bay history uh, in a past episode, so I'll put a link out to that as well. But I I wanted to dig in. You know, we always try to get into some tips and and tricks and stuff like that because sure. you know there's a there's a whole thing. So anything we don't cover today on on your background, we'll, we'll catch up with maybe John or whatever <laughs> at a later point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe just, uh, you know, as we start to think about this, I, you know, if we think about trout fishing, you know, May kind of, uh, it's we're coming up on May, June, we're July. We're coming up on the mayhem yeah, of yeah, May, the, which is the salmon fly hatch. Exactly. So describe, describe the, the salmon fly hatch. Well, maybe just talk about your box. What, what do you, what do you start, start us there? What are you putting in that box to get started? Um, well, I, I have, I have dedicated fly boxes for almost all the different species. So I have one fly box that's just salmon fly dries and one fly box that's golden stones and yellow sallies and one fly box that's just mayflies, one fly box that's just green drakes and then one fly box that's hmm. pale evening duns and pale morning duns. So I lots of different fly boxes. But yeah. more more importantly than that, the, the salmon fly hatch is something that I, you know, I, I can talk about a little bit here because I um, – I, I write a report, a fishing report on our website and I write it every week and I'm just in the middle of writing another one about the salmon fly hatch, but I've written 20 previously to this one, (laughs) 20 reports in past years, every every year, all about, I do it every Friday. I, I post a report and then when the fishing gets hot and heavy, I'm posting reports a couple days a week. Mm-hmm. So, um, but in terms of the salmon fly hatch, you know, I think this next report that I'm going to post this afternoon is going to be really important for people who are just getting into this because the salmon fly hatch is one of the trickier ones to hit just right. It gets a ton of hype, um, but it's not always it's not always a, a hatch that people walk away from the river from and go, "That was amazing." Yeah. Because there's a ton of elements that have to come together. So mm-hmm. we know the bugs are coming. We know the bugs are there. Their populations have declined a little bit um, in in the past 10 years due to the way the dam is being managed, which is a whole nother podcast. Mm-hmm. But, um, but we do know they're coming, and we know that it's all a matter of water temperature. So when the water temperature gets to right around like 54, 55, we start to see the salmon flies and 
let's just call them stoneflies because yeah. we have more than just a salmon fly. We got the golden stone. Yep. So you got the Terranarsis californica, which is the salmon fly. And then you have Hesperal Perla Pacifica, which is the golden stone. And then we also have a whole series of isoperla stones, um, probably six different uh, species of yellow sallies that they last all throughout June. And sometimes we'll even have a few kicking around into July. Mm -hmm. So they come, they come a little bit later, but they're a really important stonefly as well. But the stoneflies are not like other hatches. So I get people that come into the shop and they're like, well, there's bugs everywhere, but I didn't see any fish rising. Hmm. And it's because this isn't a hatch where the insects are um, ascending from the bottom and then coming to the surface and having their wings dry and floating down the river so fish can freely feed on them. These these insects emerge at night. They're a nocturnal emerger and they crawl to the edge of the river they crawl out onto the rocks or up onto the trees or up into the grass, and then they just bust out of the back of their shuck. And everybody who's out there in May can see these empty nymph shucks hanging on rocks and hanging on trees. And that's what they are, is basically the exoskeleton of the salmon fly or stone fly, golden stone, um, before they emerge to become an adult. So they don't have a pupa. You know, they're, yeah. they're not pupating so so when you fish this hatch, you have to re, you have to really think about it in the way that the fish aren't rising for these insects. The fish move into the shallows, and partially the fish are in the shallows because they're also finishing up their spawning at this time of year. But they're opportunistically waiting for the wind to blow or for one stonefly to be so clumsy that he falls into the water from the grass or from the trees. And so it's not it's not a hatch where you're going to see fish just rising, but yeah. you have to think like a fish and think, where would I be if I were a fish? I would be underneath a tree so that I'm protected from predators like osprey and heron, and I'm waiting right underneath this tree with low-hanging branches for one of these uh, stoneflies to fall into the water. And so in the beginning of the hatch, it's very much jungle fishing where you've <laughs> got to be, you know— hanging off of the limb of one tree, you're up to your chest and you're only two feet off the bank and you're trying to fling your stonefly up underneath the overhanging branches of a tree. And I kind of coined the term jungle fishing um, yeah. back in a fishing report, I don't know, 15 or 18 years ago. But it truly, it truly does require that you really get down into the jungle water to find these fish. And whether that's along a bank with tall grasses where the grasses are going to hang over and the, and the bugs will fall in or best is to get up underneath the trees that mm -hmm. line, line the river. That's right. And, um, and so that's in the beginning of the hatch. Now at the middle of the hatch, it can be kind of frustrating for anglers because those, those trout don't need to eat very many stoneflies. So beginning is say it's going to start happening here. Yeah. So it, I, I always get asked daily, I get asked, crystal ball, when yeah, is it going to happen? Time. When could I they go? <laughs> will, I, well, it's a best time and, and when it starts are two different things. But it, we're, we've already seen a few bugs, like one or two. Yeah. And that means we're going to see probably the bushes will start overflowing with bugs between the 5th and the 9th of, of May. 
So we're only a week away. And here's a question for you. I had a question just recently. Somebody was asking, okay, I'm planning a trip on May 15th. I'm going to be over there for three days. Should I go in the lower river or should I go up in the more of the Trout Creek down that upper? What would you tell that person? Well, I would tell that person you probably want to go lower down because the Trout Creek section, see the, the section of river closest to the dam in historically in years past, um, they get the hatch last because the water theoretically is colder coming out of the dam because it used to come out of the bottom of the dam. Now That's they're right. pouring top water out. Top. So the water isn't quite, it's not quite a dr- as dramatically moving up river as it used to. It kind of happens all at once um, because of the water temperature. But I would say that the 15th of May, yeah, there will be some bugs up there, but there will be way more bugs okay. down here in the Moppin area. And let's, uh, yeah, real quick, Amy, I just want to paint the picture because we have people all over the country and world yeah. that are listening and probably a lot that haven't heard of the Deschutes. Yeah, so, let me let me explain the lower yeah. Deschutes real quick. So what we call the lower Deschutes is the Deschutes River that flows beneath the Pelton Round Butte Dam Complex. And so this is a, a tailwater, um, a really unique river because it doesn't fluctuate. We don't get spring runoff. It's, it's mostly all spring fed. And one of the rivers that feeds it is the Metolius River, and then the Crooked River also feeds it. And and then the Deschutes actually starts 200 miles Mm -hmm. south, and that river flows north. So the Deschutes River kind of flows through Bend, and then it becomes, I mean, it's a small river. It is heavily irrigated out of in the upper stretches. And then once it gets down to the... Pelton Round Butte Dam Complex, the river becomes much more wild. It is one of the first, not the first, but one of the first designated wild and scenic Mm -hmm. rivers. Um, We have floats that we can do where there are no roads along the river and you won't see, you won't see uh, other cars or anything like that. We've got a lot, we do a lot of overnight camp trips out here, which is really cool Mm -hmm. because it's something that not every Western river can offer. And describe too, Amy, before as you're going, this is great, by the way. Um, yeah. The Deschutes itself, because some people won't even know that the fact that it's, it's you th- people think of Oregon, they think of wet, but describe, like if you, <laughs> yeah. if a new person comes to the Deschutes, what do they see in there? Yeah, they're very, often very surprised because they're expecting dripping moss. And yep. we are in an arid, high desert climate. We get a little bit more rain than Phoenix, but wow. not much. Wow. So sometimes um, we get about, nine to 11 inches a year is about average. And that is really, really dry. So we live in the desert. And those evenings, especially the summer evenings, when you're talking about those river trips is, is amazing because you're getting, you're, you're sitting there, right? It's 80 degrees out in the evening. You're sitting there. It's the moon's out. There's bugs. Yeah. Around. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's quite an experience, isn't it? It's super cool. And then it gets cool in the evenings yeah. too, because it's the desert. So um, yeah, and we don't have any insects that bite us on the river. So, I mean, other than once in a while a horsefly, but we don't have mosquitoes. So, we sleep out under the stars on a lot of our camp trips. And the customers yeah. often want to sleep in a tent, and that's just a security blanket thing. What about rattlesnakes? Oh, yeah, we've got rattlesnakes. <laughs> um, that's something, you know, that that really the rattlesnakes are a great snake to have in my opinion, because they're going to let you know that they're there yeah, and they're going to warn you and say, please don't step on me. And then they're going to take off and get away from you. The thing that's not real friendly about rattlesnakes is their interactions with our four-legged furry friends oh, right. that we sometimes bring to the river. So, um, 
I have seen dogs get bitten in the face by rattlesnakes. I mean, it's just, it's something that happens. If you're going to bring your dog out here, you are risking your dog getting bitten by a rattlesnake. And a 50 pound dog, it's, it's okay. If you've got some liquid Benadryl children's is the best you give them, you give them a certain amount per 10 pounds of their body weight and you'll have time to get them to the vet. Yeah. Um, other little dogs, I know little Jack Russells and those kinds have died from getting mm. a full dose of venom, but yeah. it's just a, a fact of life out here. We do have rattlesnakes, and, and the only way to avoid them is to just keep your ears open. Yeah. Don't walk when the trains are going along the river because you won't be able to hear them, mm-hmm. and, uh, and just point. keep your eyes open because they do like to be in the grasses right next to the river. People gotcha. assume that they want to be up on the rocks in the desert, but... They they find they actually come down to the river and eat salmon flies during the salmon fly hatch. Oh wow! So there are often snakes, not just rattlesnakes, but garter snakes, and uh, we snakes. have rubber boas on oh, right. bull snakes. We have racers. We have all kinds of snakes out here, but they yep. um, they like to crawl up into the grasses and just gobble down salmon flies. Wow. As do as do the geese and the mergansers and all the birds along the river that you see during the salmon fly hatch. They're all eating. You know, the little goslings follow their parents along the grass lines and they just pluck salmon flies <laughs> and stone flies off the grass. And that's how, that's cool. you know, all these cool animals that's are out cool. here enjoying the hatch. Nice. Seagulls, you'll see lots of, of gulls up there eating salmon flies too. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. OPST's micro series has been designed to pleasantly accommodate both single hand and two handed waterborne casts. Sporting single-weld upper grips, switch-style lower handles, a medium-fast action, and a short length that makes almost anything possible. Uh, I've been swinging flies for trout with this uh, this lovely rod uh, with the Micro Series lately, and it's been really amazing. In fact, um, on my last dry fly trip, I actually put the uh, Skagit line away, grabbed an old reel with a five-weight line. Uh, I think it was a weight forward line. Tossed that on this rod, and it casted. Uh, how did it cast? It was like a dream. Um, lots of power and a super delicate touch. It kind of feels like this rod pretty much does it all, so, um, so this is pretty amazing stuff. Whether you are swinging soft tackles, throwing heavy articulated streamers, or busting bushy salmon flies into the teeth of an afternoon breeze, these nifty little hybrid rods should have a permanent place in your quiver. Head over to wetflyswing.com OPST to get it started right now. That's wetflyswing.com OPST. Okay, let's get back to the show. Let, yeah, let's, let's get back to that. So we're talking temperatures. Back to the river. Yeah, back to the river. Okay. So keep us going. Okay, well, let's just quickly finish the description of the river. So where the Highway 26 comes from Portland and goes to Bend, and it goes through the Warm Springs Indian Reservation, um, where that crosses is basically the first boat launch. And that first stretch of the Deschutes is, is Warm Springs to Trout Creek is the most popular stretch. It's closest to the uh, six or however many fly shops there are in Bend mm-hmm. and Redmond and Sisters. And then it's close for fly shops from Portland and guides from Portland. So that stretch from Warm Springs to Trout Creek gets a ton of pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a campground at Mecca Flats, which is near the upper end of that. And there's a campground at Trout Creek, which is at the lower end of that. And people hike and bike along the river. Um, and it gets a it gets quite a bit of use. And yep. then you come to Trout Creek Campground. And from that point, 
downriver. There are no roads. There's no way to drive or bike. It's um, all private property, but you can float it and stop and fish wherever you want. And that is the overnight stretch that most of our most of the guides will do for trout trips. Yeah. When you're floating that section, Trout Creek to Maupin, and you're on those private, you know, there's a lot of private, can you actually fish on the river? Uh, you know what I mean? Get out, say, on. Uh, you can fish. Yeah, you can fish on the river right side. On river left, it's owned by the Indian Reservation. And until you get to the boundary of the Indian Reservation, you are not allowed to fish on river left. Permit yeah. or no permit, there is no permit from Trout Creek down for you to fish on river left. Oh, right, right. So there's no river left. But on the river right, so on one of those sections where, say, there's a, a big ag landowner who's got a bunch of property, it looks like all the way down to the river, you can actually anchor your boat and get out on the you bank. You can stop. Yeah, you can stop and get out and walk in the river. They they don't own the riverbed. Yep. So you can do that. Um, sometimes we've had encounters with unsavory individuals who own private property who try to tell you that you can't do that, but yeah. legally you can do that. Okay. And um then the other thing that we just skipped over is that you can't fish from a boat on the Deschutes. Right, you cannot right, fish from one. any floating device on the Deschutes. So you got to get out to fish. And that that makes it tricky. I mean, that means for us that we don't take out very many young anglers. I mean, we're, our minimum age is 14 because the river is so burly and so dangerous that if we had a 10-year-old out there, we wouldn't be able to leave that 10-year-old side the entire time and wouldn't be able to guide the father because you'd have to stay 100% of the time with the kid. So we have that 14-year-old minimum age for our guide trips. And then we have on the other end of the spectrum, the Deschutes is tricky to wade. So not only do you have to get out of the boat to fish, but then you have to contend with some really slippery boulders. So we oftentimes, you know, we'll have um, older people who might have balance issues and that we've we've got a program for that. We just we know all the places where we can take them and we know mm -hmm. all the places where we would never ask them to get out of the boat. Yeah. And that just takes years of experience to know what is safe and what isn't. But, you know, guiding out here is a very, very hands on um, you're hiking along the up and down along the banks. Um, you're crawling and sneaking up on fish. And it's really, I think it's fantastic that you can't fish from the boat because yeah. you really get an intimate relationship with the river and you really get an intimate relationship with the spots you're fishing. You're not just chucking stuff out there and hoping someone, you, you're actually concentrating and fishing dry flies upstream to fish that you can see before you go down the bank to cast to them. Mm. So that's it. So you're so when you come down to a spot that you maybe know of or a spot that looks good, you're coming above and you're you're trying to identify a fish uh, down in the water. Yeah, usually we'll park below below it so mm -hmm. that when we walk up the bank, we're peering over the bank, being really careful not to make a lot of movement. We're not wearing white clothing. We're, you know, kind of we're not wearing camo, but we're you know you want to be kind of in tans or mm -hmm. olives so that you're not real obvious to the fish. And you can usually walk up a bank and kind of peer over the edge and see them waiting underneath the trees. And then once, you, once you've once you kind of identified them, you get a game plan. You walk back down river towards the boat, get into the water, and start sneaking up the uh, shoreline, casting flies to the 
to the waiting trout. So that's that's what we do. That's perfect. And let's take it back to the date again. So I'm just thinking of an angler again, somebody over there who's new, pretty new to fly fishing. uh, But and they're thinking again that mid May. So if they're going to be going to their mid May, you would recommend maybe the lower river might be more of a hat or bugs. It really depends on the weather, quite honestly. Um, but the weather this year, it looks like we're going to have, um, yesterday it was in the 80s, but now it's going to be in the 60s and 70s and real windy for the next couple of weeks. So what happens with this hatch is the, the stoneflies are really sensitive to the, the temperature, the air temperature. So even though they might be, there might be hundreds of millions of these stoneflies in the grass, if it's not 80 degrees plus, they're not going anywhere. They just stay in the grass. Mm-hmm. And so we want that hot temperature to get them up and flying because they won't fly unless they have that hot temperature. Now, interestingly, when they do start flying, the only reason they're flying is because they've already mated. They have pouches of eggs on the back of each female and they want to get those eggs into the water. And this is where a lot of people really don't know this, but this is where near the end of the hatch where golden stones are way more important to the angler than a salmon fly because golden stones fly down to the river and land on the river to lay their eggs so they actually oviposit in the water salmon flies just drop their eggs from the sky mm-hmm. and so if you're not landing on the water to lay your eggs then the fish aren't keyed into that orange body color. They're way more keyed into a gold yeah. body color. Like, near a, the, like a, a, a stimulator might be a good one. A stimulator. I mean, a chubby Chernobyl in golden, you know, yeah. um, or a Normwood special or um, just one of a million uh, patterns, <laughs> which we have lined up here. We're That's ready right. for May. I'm That's looking right. right now. I'm looking down the counter behind the fly counter. And we have about 3,000 dozen dry fly, salmon flies, and stone flies ready to roll. And then our bins are full. So we... We sell a lot of flies during that's this awesome. time of year. Oh, that's yeah. perfect. And so, so again, so going back, so uh, this person's coming over there mid-May. If he comes over yeah. there, and what if he comes over there? Well, let's just talk about the warm weather. Say the weather's no. 80 degrees plus, then you, there's a chance that these salmon flies are going to be coming off. And w- are they going to be, doesn't the hatch move start lower in the river and work its way up? It, yeah, like we said before, it used to do that more, but now that water temperatures are coming out of the dam way, way warmer than they ever did. And that's a whole nother thing. But PGE has warmed up the river. Um, then the the hatch just kind of happens, not absolutely simultaneously everywhere, but it, it used to be that the water would warm as it went down river yep. and the hatch would start below Max Canyon and then work its way up river in, you know, week by week. But right now, I would say that... Uh, by May 15th, there will probably be bugs everywhere. And what you really want, if you're coming out on May 15th, you want uh, hot weather because the yeah. bugs will be way more active if it's hot. When we have a cold snap in the middle of the salmon fly hatch, you can go from one day seeing thousands and thousands and thousands of salmon flies crawling everywhere, mating in the grass. Mm-hmm. When it when the water when the air temperature plummets down to the sixties, you won't you won't you'll hardly be able to find one. They're still mm. there. They just hunker way down in the deepest parts of the grasses and yep. they won't 
they won't move. They won't fly. So that's so. it. So that's it. And, and so, yeah, so air temperature is a big, but water temperature also, should you be looking, you know, understanding the water temperature? It sounds like now yeah. they just have to the same. Well, the same you, they're going to be out when the water's like 54, 55, 56 degrees. And that's just inevitably, it's going to be that by next week. So yeah, it'll be yeah. so we'll be there and it's going to happen and everyone gets pretty excited. But just remember that this hatch, um, it's it's super fun if you hit if you hit everything right. If there's a little moisture in the air, if it's a little bit, if it's really nice and muggy and warm, mm-hmm. and the bugs are all flying, that's ideal. And it's not super windy, that's ideal. Those kinds of days where it's in the 90s and it's humid and it's uh, and it's calm, they're they're very rare. So yeah. if you hit one. Um, if you hit a day like that, be really thankful because I can tell you in 21 years of guiding the salmon fly hatch that those days are really few and far between. And uh, a lot of people come out only for the salmon fly hatch and they're really missing out on what happens out here in June and July, which is consistent mayfly hatches, consistent caddis hatches, aquatic moths, uh, aquatic crane flies. Like, yeah, the, the hatches are so good. Let's talk about that a sec, Amy. So we got basically we got this May period. So the ham, salmon fly is going crazy, you know. Yeah, and then there's anglers everywhere. Yeah, I mean, everybody wants to hit this the salmon fly hatch, and and then most people never fish the Deschutes any other time of year. It's very odd to me. Oh, is that is that true? So mo- there's a lot of people that just come over for that one hatch. There are a lot of people that just come over. Now there are my you know there are a lot of regulars who come out every weekend, and this is the river that they drive yeah. to from. Portland or Bend to fish, but there are tons of people, not only people, but outfitters that only really guide during the salmon fly hatch. Hmm. And then they go off and do something else somewhere else. Um, but the, the salmon fly hatch, if you can't tell from what I've been saying, it, it's kind of overrated in, in some ways. Yeah. It's really cool to be out there and see the big bugs, but you have to have a lot of elements just right for it to be off the charts. Good. Yeah. And, I think what's important during the salmon fly hatch when you come out, like let's say we're talking about that angler who's coming out on May 15th, he better bring some other flies too. Because if the salmon flies aren't hatching, but we have a cloudy overcast day, he could very easily see the best green drake hatch of his life or a pale evening dun hatch or Epiorus albertus, which is pink albert or, you know, pale morning duns. I mean, there's like when it's cloudy, mayfly hatches. Yep. overtake anything else and trout prefer mayflies prefer. over anything else that's cool so so let's take it take us there so again back to that trout box so if you're going out may 15th you want to have your salmon fly box but are those the ones you just mentioned you want to have those patterns yeah you want to have a few salmon fly patterns a lot of golden stone patterns and then you want to make sure that you have no fewer than about six green drake adult patterns because it when if you're ever lucky enough to be on the river when the green drake hatch comes off these are flying sausages that are green and they have big, big gray wings and the fish come out of the woodwork to eat these. This is like the most exciting hatch. And I'll never forget my first year of guiding. I had three guys and we were standing in this one spot. It's a terrible place to wade. We nicknamed the spot break dance, but we were standing in the spot and the green drake hatch came off 
And I felt pretty good because I had about 10 green drakes in my fly box and I was doling them out to the three guys. Well, in 10 minutes, every single one of those flies was gone because every fish that was eating them was huge. Hmm. Like these are fish that you don't see all the time and they, they must live in the middle of the river where we can't get to them because that in within a matter of 10 minutes, every one of these guys had lost every single green drake and the hatch went on for another hour and a half with us not being able to catch anything because we did not have any more green drakes. <laughs> and since that time, I've never hit the river without a whole box of green drakes. Like, yeah, now I carry like 50 of them on me at all times because I never want to miss that. What's a green drake if you had to say a pattern? If, if you were going to pick one up, what would be one maybe you could find online or something like that? they're really large. Um, there's a whole bunch of patterns. Like we've got the, um, we've got like, most of them are like the standard green Drake by, by, uh, Mike Lawson. Um, you've got Neely's green Drake. I mean, we've got a whole bunch of them here. I'm just looking. Yeah. If you just type in green Drake adult. Yeah. um, Adult that'll pop up a bunch of stuff. They should pop up a bunch of stuff, but I, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, let's just touch on buying flies online. Yeah. There are some really, really, really low quality flies online. Yep. And, and, uh, the thing, like if you see a fly online that costs 50 cents, I've got news for you. That hook is not worth nope. a penny nope. and it will break. And you might save yourself. You might think you're pretty smart saving yourself a little bit of money. Yeah. But you're gonna hook if you if you hook a nice fish on that fly, it might break the hook. That's a great point. The the hooks are not always very reliable on those super cheap flies. What's a good? I'm just thinking cost wise as far as a fly, just roughly. What's you know like how would like fifty cents? Of course, a dollar is probably too cheap, but roughly you're gonna pay a couple bucks or so. Yeah, I mean a couple bucks is usually. I mean we we usually charge like two twenty five for dry flies and. I know we're less expensive than a lot of places because we order in huge numbers. I bring in 15,000 dozen flies per year. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of flies. <laughs> and and so by buying in a, a larger quantities, you get better discounts and you're able to charge less for your flies. Yeah. Um, but, we, you know, flies, the margins on flies are not what they used to be. Flies are getting really expensive. And part of it is the materials they're tied with, which are you know, natural, um, birds, bird yeah. feathers and things that yeah. they're getting harder and harder to find. That's getting harder and harder to huh. source and, uh, and fly tying, you know, fly tying, it's all, everything's hand tied. The human beings make each yeah. one of those flies. So they have to be paid accordingly. And, you know, fly shops don't get flies as cheap as some people think. No. I mean, we're, we're, we're not making a killing on the flies by any means. Um, and anybody listening to this, I mean, definitely, you know, we obviously recommend if you're hitting the Deschutes to swing by and get your flies from your shop, you know, I mean, that's the, or yeah. any local shop you're at, you know, that's always the better place. You know, the advantage to coming into a local shop, I think about this kind of stuff a lot, but it's that not only am I located on the river and not only do I have guides out on the river every day coming back, telling me exactly what they experienced and exactly what hatches they saw. I'm also talking to 70 people a day who have just stepped off of the river. Yeah. 
and who can tell me what happened to them yep. and tell me what they saw. Tell me what. And I get the guys that I sold flies to in the morning who come back and buy the more of that fly because it works so well. And so, yeah, and that's in your that, newsletter. That, that'll be all be in your new, a lot of that, right? Yeah, I, I write, I, I always write about this stuff, but sometimes in my newsletter, I don't mention the exact patterns. No. And the reason for that is that I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a competitive person and I know there's a lot of shops that compete with us and they don't have to be out here if they can just read my report. Yeah. And so, gotcha. um, so your report is a good, I mean, it is entertaining. Yeah. Your report's good. I think just read it just for the FUD factor. It can be pretty entertaining, but, um, yeah, I like to give people really good info on what types of water to fish and a lot about the insects and about the, the hatches and what to expect. Um, yeah. But, you know, with so many people selling flies online, I'm not going to reveal well, all the greatest patterns. And that's perfect. And I think the way we're covering it here, I think is great. We're talking salmon more generally. So we're talking salmon flies, golden stones, green drakes, yellow sallies, any, if we're talking May, June, July, any other major patterns? We well, you, throw? you need caddis on the oh, Deschutes. Right. We, yeah, there, you need caddis. Um, that we have a lot of different species of caddis out here. Um, we fish a lot of caddis pupa. We fish, um, sometimes we'll fish case caddis, which is the October caddis, dicosmicus, which is a very, very large caddis. Um, but yeah, all through the summer, you want to be fishing caddis. We've got these little tiny crane flies. We've got um, aquatic moths, which are, they look like a caddis, except when they land, their wings are not in a tent. And, you know, this, like talking about insects, I remember clearly when I was, when I was fairly new to fly fishing that the, the insect talk just kind of went right over my head and yeah. it was confusing. And I went to a presentation when I lived in Seattle at the Swallow's Nest and it was Rick Hayfley, who is yep. now a good friend of mine and who I'm on the board of Deschutes River Alliance with, but it was a Rick Hayfley presentation on flies, and he ex was just going over the basics. This is a mayfly. It looks like a sailboat. This is a caddis. It has a tent wing. This is a stonefly. These have a flat wing. You know, like, this is stuff that can be really daunting to the new angler, and this is why they need to take advantage of coming into fly shops so that the fly shop can explain these things to them and and tell them what hatches will happen today, yeah. you know, based on what the weather looks like. Like right now it's cloudy outside. So when I get anglers coming in here um, to purchase flies, I'm going to have some mayflies in the in the arsenal because you you could have some late March browns still hatching off. They actually mostly hatch in April. And then you you could have some pink Alberts out there, which are EPRS Albertus, little tiny pink mayflies. You could mm -hmm. have uh, pale evening duns, pale morning duns. All that stuff is gonna is just about to pop right now with with the weather. And that's where when you as you talk about, and I've had Rick Hayfley on a past episode. It's a great one. I'll put mm -hmm. a link out to that one as well. But he's fantastic. It's uh, the the struggle is here is you mentioned all this stuff, and it's a ton, and that's where it gets overwhelmed. Where you're like, okay. I've got all these boxes. Again, let's think of our person. We're going to call him Ethan, right? This is our person okay. coming out. He, he, he's been fly fishing, but this is this salmon fly this whole time. May, June is new to him. I mean, how do you break that all that down where you've got a list? I mean, could we just tell him to swing by the shop the, the, you know, that, that on the 14th and basically check in and see what's going on? We oftentimes, I'll say to a guy, go get your fly boxes. Let me see what you have. 
because I don't want to load him up with a bunch of stuff he already has. And I want to see what yeah. he has. And I want to, you know, and so they bring their fly boxes in. I'm like, this pattern works really well for me. This pattern I really like near the end of the hatch. This, you know, you've got some really good. These will make for good droppers. And let me show you a couple yeah. other things if you want to buy some stuff. All right. When is the end of the hatch? Well, it it can be over as early as like May 20th if we get really hot weather. But oh, usually wow. it goes all the way through the month of May. And if you're lucky, a little bit into June. But then, of course, the hatch, when we're talking about the stoneflies, we do have the yellow sallies all the way through June. And usually all the way through June. So you're saying basically the salmonflies and the goldens kind of peter out in... They're kind of over by the end of May usually. It's and that just they some sometimes like last year we kept getting cold snaps, and so they hung around like there'd only be one hot day and some of them would fly and then it would get cold again and they stayed oh, right. around longer. So yep. it it's really weather dependent on how long that lasts. But gotcha. um, yeah, in terms of of there's a whole bunch of hatches. Like this is the kickoff. This is the beginning of when when we start to really get into the dry fly fishing. And you know, <clears throat> we've been doing a lot of Euro nymphing. Um, and I know that there's controversy swirling sometimes about Euro nymphing. And I would argue that it is a not really fly fishing. You're fishing a 20 foot leader, but it sure is fun. Uh, it's a f- another great arrow to have in your quiver of tools on the river and people are catching more fish than they've ever caught before by using these super fine leaders and super fine tippets and i think it it it's really an important you know really important skills are developed and an understanding of reading water um by by challenging yourself with different methods yep no, I agree. So, I agree. I, I, we've had the Euro. We've had, you know, a lot of the people you know. I mean, Tom Jarman's been. We have him coming okay, up. Yeah. We've got Devin Olson. Yeah. We've, we've, and the Euro game was interesting because when I started it, I didn't, you know, this podcast, I didn't know a lot about it. But as I got into it, you know, you realize like, well, <laughs> it's it's one of the most effective ways and it's legit for sure. I, I think it most is. of the people that, I mean, I don't know. I always say like, what is fly fishing? I think you kind of have to be casting. That seems like one thing that you have to do. But are you... You're not, you're not casting. casting. <laughs> not so really. Go. No. I mean, so there's, you're not casting the fly line. The fly line is not loading the rod. The, the nymphs are loading the rod. Yeah. So, um, you are using flies, but it is a little, it is a little, um, yeah. yeah. It's a little different, but yeah. it's just, it's fun because now when we, when, when someone walks into the shop in the morning, I'll say, so how are you, how, what are your, what are your weapons? Do you have a Euro rod? If yeah. you, you know, find out if they're fishing with a Euro rod. Cause there's a specialized type of rod that people use for that. And, and it makes a huge difference. Or are you dry dropper fishing? Do you know what a dry dropper is? Let me show you what a dry dropper is. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, cause a lot of people are, are, there's so many people coming in new to the sport this year that we're doing a lot of teaching, you know, let me show you how you make a tag on your leader. Let me show you how to tie that knot. Let me show you a really good knot for Euro nymphs called the 1620 knot. Hmm. You know, and so mm-hmm. like it's really I I really enjoy, you know, being able to work with new people and get them excited. We call them the budding enthusiasts when they come in here and they're yep. they're excited to get out on the river and they they're happy if they're catching a couple of fish a day. 
yeah. know, they're, they're not looking for huge numbers. And that's exactly what this episode is for. It's for that person that is the budding angler. I, I love it because, you know, there's a lot of people that do struggle, right? It's, there's, it's really busy and I'm trying to break it down so somebody can maybe get into a fish or two, you know, while yeah. they're over there. Well, and that's, so the busy factor is another thing that, that, um, can become contentious with, uh, longtime anglers and newbies, not realizing that, you know, this is a, the actual original social distancing sport. Hmm. And when I'm fishing in a spot, I don't want another car to pull up, park right next to mine and have the angler walk down and start fishing within no. 20 feet of no. me or even within 20 yards yeah. or within a hundred yards in some cases. Yep. Um, just because that's, you know, that it's not, Hey, let me, let me come right down and join the party. That's, that's, that's typically not why we're out on the river. We're out on the river for solitude and we're, we're trying to solve a puzzle between us and the trout on what are they eating and how can I get my fly to him without him realizing that I'm an angler and you know, that this is not a natural fly. So. Exactly. How, how do you, so if we're talking again, so let's say, you know, you got, you're in the salmon fly, it's mid May or whatever it is in there. And, but like you said, it's a cool day. There's not a lot going on with the salmon flies. What, how do you, and then there's not a lot going on overall, but you want to stick with dries. What do you, what do you do when it's that situation? Well, what I would do in that situation, I would put on a salmon fly or golden stone, more likely a golden stone dry. And I would put a, uh, I would put a nymph dropper below it. And what happens sometimes when you're fishing a dropper below dry, and I would use a Euro nymph for that dropper because it will get down really quickly. But the, the fly I have on will have some foam in the body. So it will hold that nymph up. And, uh, and I'd fish that dropper because what often happens is a trout that may, might be about four feet deep. He doesn't want to come up necessarily for the dry, but he'll tip his head up to see the dropper. He'll put the dropper in his mouth, and then at that angle, he then notices the dry fly and comes up and grabs the dry fly. When you're fishing a dry with a dropper underneath it, um, oftentimes the the trout will come towards that shiny little bead head that they that's you know that's what catches their attention, and that trout might be hanging three or four feet deep in the water column, mm-hmm. and he'll he'll come over to inspect that shiny little bead, whether it's silver or gold or copper or pink or whatever color that bead might be. He'll come over and he'll tilt up to grab that bead. And while he's at that angle, he's looking up and he sees a stonefly on the water. And because the trout had been eating them, you know, when they were more active, they're still keyed into them. They're still, that is still imprinted on them that this protein source is there for the taking opportunistically and so oftentimes they'll grab the bead head and then grab the dry fly or at least make a swipe at it Hmm. and then you set the hook and you land them on the bead head so so that's that's one good thing to do when you're not seeing a lot of surface action um you know uh, and and I really enjoy fishing a dry dropper because it's it's super interactive. You know, you're you're seeing everything and you're watching everything, which is why we all love fly fishing. I think. When you're doing the dry dropper, um, do you typically say that just what you just mentioned there? Would you say fifty fifty on whether they're going to take the dry or the dropper, or what, what's what's that look like? I think they take the dropper more often, but they often take a swipe at the dry oh, while okay. the dropper's in their mouth. But you know, and then the depth that you set your dropper will really depend on where you're fishing. Sometimes I've only got my dropper 
eight inches below my dry, oftentimes I have my dropper two to three feet below my dry if I'm fishing some big, burly, deep water on the Deschutes, which is the type of water I like to fish on the Deschutes. Yeah. The gnarlier, the better. The gnarlier, the better. And that's, so with that dry dropper, you're fishing some gnarly water? Yeah, you're fishing the same kind of jungly water that, you know, where it drops off very quickly from the bank. It's yeah. like if you're standing on the bank and you step into the water, you're going to be instantly up to your chest, that kind of water. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. TurtleBox is the loudest, truly portable, waterproof Bluetooth speaker available. Perfect for a skiff, drift boat, or your craft of choice. The guys at TurtleBox believe in respecting the peace and beauty while on the water, but listening to great tunes before and after can be amazing. The features I love most on this one are the quality bulletproof frame, easy to push and lighted buttons, and uh, at home you can add another speaker for uh, stereo. To be honest, I've been using uh, this speaker quite a bit around the home, and the dance party with the kids has been great. Find out why TurtleBox is our go-to speaker and why it is great for the river as well. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash TurtleBox to support a great company, this podcast, and some tunes. Okay, now let's get back to the show. What's your leader look like when you're fishing that, just that dry dropper set you mentioned? I usually start off with a seven and a half foot uh, 4X leader. A lot of people will use 3X with a, a salmon fly dry or a stone fly dry, but I prefer 4X. And I use a pretty unique knot, which is on our YouTube channel, but it's called the non-twist knot. And so what I do is I put my 4X tippet through the eye of this dry dry fly, the salmon fly. And I have a piece, about a, about a four-inch piece of 10-pound maxima. And I tie a triple surgeon's knot with the 10-pound maxima attached to the end of my 4X leader. And that knot is so big that it won't allow the salmon fly, it won't pass through the eye of the fly. Hmm. But the fly can spin endlessly on the leader, which salmon flies do. Anytime you're fishing a big bushy dry like a salmon fly or a grasshopper or whatever, it's going to spin and cause your leader to get super twisted if it's tied directly to the leader. But this way I've got it basically the fly can swivel around the end of the leader. It can't come off the leader because the knot is stopping it. And the strength of that is 100% because I'm not actually testing a knot. I don't have a knot tied to the eye of the fly that's getting pulled on and pulled on and pulled on. The fly is simply butting up to a big thick knot that I've tied at the end of the leader. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's okay. Yep. And then what I do is I um, I tie to the bend of the hook. Usually I'll do 5X fluorocarbon because fluorocarbon sinks and I want something very thin that will allow my bead head to drop down right away so that I'm mm-hmm. fishing the dry dropper right away. And then I adjust that length based on the piece of water that I'm fishing. If I'm fishing anything that's you know, only about three feet deep, then I might only do a one foot dropper. But usually yeah. I'm fishing water that's five or six feet deep. So you're fishing like a two, three foot long tip it off. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. And no way, just a tungsten bead, basically. The tungsten beads weight enough. Yeah. Yeah. Tungsten beads are um, four times heavier than a brass bead of the same size. So what I often do in the shop here, because most of our bead heads now are tungsten beads, um, we've got a massive selection of Euronyms. And 
my uh, tungsten bead, I'll, I'll take a tungsten bead of the same size and then, and then a, an old hare's ear that I still have bins of hare's ears yep. tied with brass beads. And I just drop the same fly or similar fly with the same, same bead into someone's hand. And they're like, whoa, yeah. the tungsten bead is four times heavier. There you go. So. That's perfect. And then, and I did have a note here, uh, Garrett uh, Lesko in the Facebook group had a question. I, I okay. threw this out. He had a question for you. And this, this is one pattern that, that you, you have named and he was, uh, he wanted to know, um, uh, how dis- how you discovered the I guess the blue uh, blue uh, oh my magic pa- blue fly yeah. yeah yeah the blue so was that by accident or how that happened um well we had a fly in here called the blueberry and that fly was I think an umpa pattern I can't remember but we we just killed them on this blueberry fly and I thought and then the blueberry fly got discontinued and customers were coming in going, do you have any blueberries? And I'm like, nope, the blueberry fly doesn't exist anymore. We can't get it. So I went over to the glow bright floss and I shone my UV light on it. And I looked at that blue and I was like, huh, this could be good. So I tied up just a paradigm style yeah. fly with the blue floss because purple works out here yeah. and we knew blue worked. And so I started using that blue fly and I'd have either a little pink collar on it, sometimes with dubbing, sometimes with just, I would color the, the thread pink and I would just fish that paradigm. And we, we had Ben who works here, tie up 350 dozen of them Hmm. winter before last. And those, that 350 dozen of the blue fly, the magic blue fly, they were gone in like a week and a half. No kidding. Yeah. So People really love that fly. So I submitted that fly this year um, as a tie, as a uh, pattern for Montana Fly Company oh, yeah. to tie up. Perfect. And so, yeah, so I'm I'm uh, signed on with them as a signature tire. And oh, cool. they've got the blue one coming out, which I just call the magic fly. And um, another version of it, which is green, which also glows and I guess looks like a caddis pupa. Really simple flies. It's not. But. But the idea came to me, and then when I heard that other fly shops in uh, nearby cities were copying that fly, I thought, well, I better get that fly under contract so so that I can, you know, get it tied in the numbers I need it to sell it in here and before anyone else steals it. So there you go. So basically Montana fly and they have obviously a ton of flies. So you have, and some of these patterns, I guess, like we're talking Sam fly, golden stones, green drakes, we could go to, they could go take a look at their probably MFCs. And do you guys have on your website? I mean, can we go to your shoots angler and look at all your fly selection there? Yeah. Yeah. We, we take, we just launched a brand new site about a month and a half ago. We take stunning pictures of our flies we take pictures of everything on our website so we don't just go to other websites or go to the manufacturer's website and use their stock photos we're we're taking pictures of our stuff and every single fly that we have in the store is pictured on our website okay and you can buy it yeah so if it's all on your website you were mentioning before about not giving out secrets it seems like they're all they're already (laughs) there right yeah, well, I mean, they're there, but that's not a secret. That's just all the patterns you that get, we sell in here. I'm talking about, I'm talking about, you know, 
on a fishing report saying you want to ha- use this, 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 exact this, this fly, and this right, right, because, right. uh, yeah, because then, you know, anyone could have that information. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like, I'd, re- I'd, I give that information to someone if they walk in my store. Yeah. But that's yeah, it. that's it. Perfect. Well, I'm going to send, the, I'm going to send Ethan into your store. Here. Yes. <laughs> send him my way. Well, let's break it down as we kind of start to wrap this up. We're again, we're thinking kind of the May, June, July period. What um, what else should we know about the hatches? Anything else you want to highlight here? Should you know? Should we just get a box for each of the the patterns we, the, that we talked about? Yeah, I mean, when you start out fly fishing, you usually just have one box, yeah. and that box has dries and nymphs and wet flies and whatever else in it. But as you grow and expand, it's really nice to to have those organized by by species. Maybe I mean, maybe at first you'll have a nymph box and a dry fly box. And then down the road, you go, man, I got a lot of salmon flies. I think I can just have a stonefly box. And that'll have my salmon flies, my golden stones, my yellow sallies in it. And then I have a mayfly box. And so, you know, gradually, I think of like flies in my in my personal collection of flies. I think of them kind of like camping equipment. Like I didn't start camping and go out and buy a tent, a stove, a be, you know yeah. the 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 camping the backpack the sleeping bag the cot I didn't buy all that at once no I bought one thing and then eight months later maybe I saved up and bought the sleeping bag and then I later I got the sleeping pad you know I mean like flies take a long time to build up a collection of them um, but I'd say you know buy the best quality flies you can because you know flies the there there is a huge difference between like really cheapo flies and i know i said that earlier but yeah but i just you know i see i see that saving a ton of money you're really not saving much if you finally hooked a fish on that fly and and the hook breaks yeah, I know. I hear you. No, this is great. I think this, and I'm just looking at your flies. I think anybody listening now, we're going to send them over to DeschutesAngler.com because, I mean, you have a really cool, really clean website. I mean, the filter, I just filtered by salmon flies and popped yeah. out all the, yeah. just the adult, adult, adult stoneflies. And it's like, okay, there you go. There's a chubby Chernobyl. Yeah, there's there's, a whole uh, there's bunch the of Sally. There. There's some like, the, even the Clark Stone, some good old school stuff. You got it. You got yeah, it. And Clark Stone's, Clark Stone is probably one of you the like, very best patterns for, for the hatch, you still like especially that one? later. In, yeah. Later in the hatch, that is a very lively looking little lightweight fly. Um, yeah. it's fantastic. Why would you use like a Clark's over say, a, a like a big chubby Chernobyl or something like that, or chubby Norman or whatever. I think switching it up is really important because the fish have a memory. I don't think people realize how much of a memory a rainbow trout has, but I read a book early on in, in my guiding career about, studying rainbow trout and and how this this scientist had a tank full of rainbow trout and he put a lever mechanism in there where if a fish brushed against the lever it would drop food into the tank well it took these fish a couple weeks to figure out that if 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 we brush against this lever suddenly there's food and then they started to get to where they would brush against the lever as they were project you know as they were in a trajectory towards where the food comes out so they would be more efficient hit it with their tail and they're the first one there to grab the food (laughs) then they they took the lever out of the tank and they they let a year go by most rainbow trout i think live to be six or seven years old i don't know it depends on their on the river yeah um but they took the mechanism out of the tank and for a year 
They put the mechanism back in the tank, and within seconds, those fish were back on it again. Jeez, and no that kidding. was a year of time. So, same fish. Wow. Same fish. They remember that. And I know that I don't, when I'm guiding, I won't go to the same spot two days in a row because the fish have been beaten on. If yeah. I fished that spot two days ago and we caught a bunch of fish, it's not going to produce very well the next day. You got to rest your spots. And so if everybody is out there fishing a chubby Chernobyl mm-hmm. and you you step into a spot, you don't know that somebody was in that spot in the morning with their chubby Chernobyl. You don't know how many anglers have fished that spot that day. But if you step in there with something that's different, something they haven't seen a million times before, I think you have a, a better chance. And that's why being your own fly tire uh, is another mm-hmm. like that's a that's a very important step in the evolution of any fly fisherman is to become a fly tire because nothing will teach you entomology more than learning how to tr- tie trout flies. Right. I'm just looking at the the Euro nymphs here now, and um, would you say I mean those definitely are unique, right? I mean, are you are those imitating anything you guys have? Are they really imitating a bug, or is it? <laughs> no, no, they're just. Uh, I think they eat the bead. Um, Evan, who is one of our guides and who has been really our, one of our Euro gurus here, he's tied up a bunch of flies with just a bead on them. Just bead, nothing else. Like just colored a bead. beads? A colored bead. So some days they're eating gold beads, some days they're eating silver beads, some days they're eating copper beads, some days they're eating pink beads, some yep. days they're eating orange beads. And it's the bead color that's really important. And those those nymphs are usually tied Usually they're tied in a slick manner, yeah, which allows down. them to get down very quickly. Um, but, you know, it it was somewhat surprising to me when we started using those that that the fish were so eager to grab them when we had been working so hard on all these perfect caddis pupa yep. imitations and all this stuff. Come to find out that uh, that a lot of times it's just the bead that they're yeah. eating. Yeah, but by being a fly tire, you know, you're able to come up with something that's just a little different than than anything they've seen before. So, like, I've got a Clark Stone. Lee Clark actually just sent me his the the material that he uses. Um, hmm. He's 83 years old, oh, yeah. about to be 83. Oh, wow. He just sent me the the stuff he used on his Clark Stone, and he sent me some purple material, um, that Antroni like yarn that's yep. in the body of the Clark Stone. And I'm going to tie up some purple oh, wow. Clark stones well, this year. Why do you think the purple and even blue, why, why do those things work? Um, I, I have a theory on the purple, and that is, um, it's based on some information. I believe this was in a conversation years ago with Dave McNeese, who used to own oh, yeah. a, a fly shop. He's yep. an awesome, awesome He's guy, great. awesome tire, yeah, awesome on, everything. Yeah. But he... Um, he told me he was out collecting butterflies. He's he's very much into collecting yep. butterflies. Yep. Most people don't know that about Dave. But he was out collecting butterflies, and I asked him, why do you think that purple haze works so well? Why does the, the purple parawolf work so well? And he said, I think he said there was a caterpillar in the alder trees along the river that has a purple hue to it. And the caterpillars get blown off the trees in the wind and land in the river, and the fish love them. And that could be one reason why they eat purple. But they eat purple everywhere. Like, I've yeah. sent those purple flies, like a purple haze or the purple parawolf, I prefer. Um, I've sent those with guys to New Zealand. And they're like, holy cow. No those, kidding. Those flies killed it in New Zealand. 
Do you think it's just like a hot spot? The same thing with a hot spot? It's probably the same as a hot spot. It's probably just some way that they see That's that different. color that the cones in their eyes are different and and they just it's a trigger to them. I don't know. I mean, yeah. there's so much we don't know about trout. Um, they're just I don't know how their little brains work, but. I try to figure it out every time I'm on the water, that's for sure. I know, yeah. I'll, I'll put a link to Dave McNeese, the episode. He actually, it was a great episode. He actually talked to one of the fun facts on that one. He talked about how he got, um, the federal government came and busted him for his flight yeah. tying, which was a, an amazing story. He yeah. T- he tells that whole story on the podcast. But, uh, well, Amy, I think we could wrap it up, out of here with the uh, the 222, which is uh, top two tips, flies, and resources. And we've been talking about flies a lot here. So if, if again, we go back to you know that mid-May and Ethan's coming on, what are the two flies that you would tell him to put on? Just I mean, you know, generally, what, what would you In put mid-May, on? In well, mid-May, I would, I would definitely have a Clarkstone and a purple chubby Chernobyl works really well during the salmon fly hatch. Oh, yeah. I mean, those those two are great flies. Um, I love the Clarkstone. I just, I like how light it is. You can't really put a big dropper off of it. So the, the chubby will give you the foam body that you need to drop a fly off of and mm-hmm. the, and the Clarkstone. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be testing out the purple Clarkstone out there, nice. but Clarkstone is a very nice, uh, lively, light little fly that works really well as the golden start to come down and lay their eggs on the water. Perfect. Perfect. And what yeah. about, you know, again, now we're on the water and we're thinking of a okay. couple of tips that'll help Ethan find a fish and he's got, okay. maybe he's using that setup. What would you tell him? Here's, here's the first tip for Ethan. If you're standing on the edge of the river and it, it looks like you're going to die getting down to the river because it's so steep yep. and gnarly and rocky and, and there's poison oak everywhere and you're pretty sure there's <laughs> rattlesnakes there. That's where you want to go. There you go. You don't want to be the guy that strolls across the grass, strolls into the river and stands on a sandbar for two hours catching nothing. So that's one tip. The other tip is watch where you put your hands on the Deschutes because not only rattlesnakes, but to me, my biggest arch enemy out there is a poison ivy. There's poison ivy and we call it poison oak. It's all along the river. It's everywhere. And I can get it from touching a fly line that's touched it. So I, I'm very hmm. susceptible to it. And I would say just really watch where you're putting your hands because there's a lot of things that you can put your hands on on the Deschutes that you're not going to be too happy. Stinging nettles, they're they're all along the Deschutes, poison, poison oak, poison ivy. Yep. I mean, it sounds like a very inhospitable place as I'm talking about it right now, but it's, yeah. it's not. No. It's just you got to be aware of what's out there and yeah. know how to avoid it. Exactly. Exactly. That's great. And then, and then I, now this is more on the resources side, but obviously you guys have probably one of the best resources for the Deschutes. Where, where would you direct somebody that's maybe listening other than what you guys have? Any other resources yeah. you'd recommend? Um, the BLM has some maps on their webpage, um, mm-hmm. river maps that you can, you can look at. Uh, Google earth is a great resource for me on yeah. all things. When I'm getting ready to go on a trip somewhere, I like to really study the area on yeah. Google earth. How would you use Google earth to, like, for this? Say you're going into the mop or into that area. How would you use that to help? Well, I would, I would use it to look at, you know, the rapids. If I'm bringing a boat out, I want to kind of know what I'm getting into. Uh, I would use it to look for where the campgrounds are. Um, I would use Google earth to look at the, the curve of the river and, and 
you know, on the Deschutes, one, one little tip is that if you're on the inside bend of a curve, you're not where the fish are. The mm. fish are always on the outside bends of the curves nice. uh, where the food is delivered to them. And so we say no foam, no fish. Yeah. The foam is home. You want to yep. look for the foam lines because that's where the food is nice. being carried. Um, we have one client who made up another phrase, which is say shalom to the foam. Hmm. which I love. <laughs> shalom, which is, what is shalom? Shalom is uh, like hello in, oh, just hello. in Hebrew. Yeah, 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 yeah. shalom. Shalom, so, that's a killer tip. Shalom to the phone. So, so Ethan, uh, that's another question. So the, the thought was, okay, I've got a drift boat. I'm not a master drift boat oarsman, but I think I could go down the section from Trout Creek down, or I could go the easier section. What would you tell? How, how, how tough is White Horse? I would say White Horse is tough. And uh, Whitehorse sinks a lot of drift boats. How, how many? How many does it sink? Do you think per year? Um, it's a. It depends on the year. It's going to sink a lot this year because the river's low and it's bony, which means that it's that it's e- a little easier to go through because it's a little slower. But all the rocks are exposed. And what people don't realize is it does not take much for a drift boat to instantly flip over and sink. Nope. Like. If you get sideways on a rock, oh, yeah, uh, you're done. You, you're done. Yeah. So I would say anyone that, that wants to, you know, take their drift boat on that stretch, they they probably, we have a great video on YouTube. Oh, you do? What, yeah, Whitehorse. It's called oh, A View From Above. And it was one of my guides rowing through Whitehorse. And funny story is the guy that d- that controlled the drone for that video, he went on that trip, wanted to check out Whitehorse. We went to Clackercraft to pick up a new boat, and his boat was there because he thought after he had filmed it and watched it and had run it with a guide that it would be cool for him to take his brand new Clackercraft through it, and it was in the shop for repairs after getting pounded in Whitehorse, although I don't think he sunk it. I think he just beat it up pretty badly in that. Just banged it on Oh shit rock. Probably smashed a whole bunch of rocks. Yeah. There's oh shit rock. There's the can opener. There's the hogs back there. You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that, and, and people don't always sink their boats in the top end of Whitehorse. No, they, they get roughed (laughs) up in the top end. Then they sink it at that, at that bottom hole. They sink it maybe in the washing machine, but oftentimes they sink it down in the very, you know, that, that, that rapid is over a mile long. Yeah. So they sink it down in the bottom where they kind of relaxed on the oars a little bit. They thought, well, I, I made it through. Yep. And then they sink it in, down in the pearl necklace or some other part of Whitehorse that's no still Which one, what, What's the pearl necklace part? Is that it's like the, down in the bottom. End. The very it's like bottom? A string of rocks. Yeah. If you yeah. watch the video, we, we gills all the, the way thing. down through the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So maybe. It's a very Ethan, helpful video. So maybe but it, I would say yeah. bring a raft if you want to do it for your first time. But even then, rafts even then, are, even then, people sink yeah. rafts. People get pinned. Um, pe- a lot of people have died. I mean, that's no not. Kidding. This river is um, the surprising thing for people that are coming from maybe a Montana river or a river that just doesn't have the volume that the Deschutes has. The Deschutes has got relentless volume, and y- you can be on doing everything right as you're heading into Whitehorse. You can be on the exact right line. Yep. But if you, if the river swells, it can pick your boat up and put your boat 10 feet to the right or left of where you want to be without you being able to do a thing about it. Yeah. Because the river is, it's got a lot of upwellings. It's, it's got a lot of power and you feel it when you're standing in the river, when you're fishing, 
tell me how you felt like you you feel the water's pushing against you at a normal rate and then all of a sudden it really pushes hard and that's that's an upwelling or swell that happens all the time on the Deschutes and it can happen at an inopportune time when you're rowing so yeah you want to yeah. be careful but yeah just that there's a lot of logistics for the Deschutes um I'm working on a page on our webpage that's going to talk about everything from you've got to have a boater's pass every day of the year on the Deschutes. If you put any kind of floating device in the Deschutes, you must buy a Deschutes River boater's pass. Where to buy that? You've got to have an invasive species permit. You know, where to get your fishing license. Camping, you can't just camp for free anywhere along the Deschutes. You have to camp in campsites. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're camping with a boat, you got to bring a toilet. I mean, there's just a zillion little rules that other rivers don't have. But the Deschutes has these has these rules and, and people need to, yep. people need to adhere to them if yeah. they don't want to get fined. No. And, and it's good. I mean, the rules, you know, rules are rules, but I mean, I think the nice thing is, is that as the shoots gets busier and busier, just like the, the permit like system. Everywhere. Yeah. The permit yeah. system, right. I mean, if you didn't have, I mean, everybody, when they first was getting that going, was like, oh man, permits. But I mean, if you didn't have that right now, it would be a zoo, wouldn't it? Oh yeah. It would be, it would be insane. So yeah, we do have we have limited entry on certain parts of the river. So if you don't have a pass, you, you can't buy one if they're sold out. So you've yeah. got to plan ahead for your trips on the Deschutes. And... Cool. All right. All right, Amy. Well, we're just about there. Yep. I had a couple of just really quick rapid fire ones. Sure. And, and here's, here's a good one for you. Uh, Steve, we didn't talk steelhead fishing at all. Obviously the Deschutes is known for the summer steelhead, but you know, steelhead first fishing or trout fishing on the Deschutes, you can only pick one for the rest of your, your time. I've caught a lot of steelhead um, in my day, and I do love them, but I like the game and the year-round opportunities that we have with trout, because we don't have year-round opportunities with steelhead, and our steelhead opportunities are, are being diminished yeah, uh, tough, tough year. quickly, tough so period. it's... Um, I'd, I'd have to choose trout. They're, they're, they're my bread and butter. They're, they're out there all the time. They're there. They're ready for us. They're yeah. I'd have to choose trout though. I do love tangling with a good steelhead. I know. I think we go, I don't know. It feels like to me, you go in phases. Like I was on a, you know, I was in a steelhead kick and now it feels like trout is just as exciting. Cause it's more of a educational thing. Like everything we talked about here, we could dig into the green Drake for, for like a whole conversation, right? Oh I mean, yeah. You could talk you know, entire species, just one species for, for an hour. It, that's what, that's what I like about it. It's a game and it's, and it's a thinking game. And the more you dive into fly fishing, the more you're rewarded. If you learn how to tie the flies, if you, if your casting becomes better and um, you learn how to read the water. I mean, that's the thing I love about the Deschutes is I've been out here fishing the river as a guide for 21 years. And I fished it for you know, four years before that, before I even became a guide, and I'm never bored on the yeah. Deschutes. The that's fish cool. aren't dumb. The fish that's are cool. not easy, and that's what makes them fun. Yep. Yep. This is awesome. All right, Amy, well, I'll let you get out here, and uh, just a quick quick one before in the next uh, six months or do a year, anything new you want to give a shout out with you, what you guys have going with the business or personally or anything? Well, uh, we're just, you know, I'm looking forward in the next six months to get back to hosting a bunch of trips. I love yeah. taking people to Christmas Island. I like to spend five or six, uh, five or six weeks a year at Christmas Island, which is a lot. Um, can't wait to get back to see all our friends in British Columbia. And I can't wait for this world to get back to some sort of normalcy and, you know, 
I know we're we're gonna get there. It's just yeah, it's gonna be a slow. <laughs> long, it's taken longer than we all thought, so we're just a to, lot longer. Have to yeah. deal with it, but uh, all right, Amy. Hey, I just want to give you one quick shout out too. You probably don't remember this, but a long time ago, I don't know how long ago it was, but I was out there fishing for steelhead, and I think you ran into me on the river, and you said, uh, "Have you picked up the spade rod yet?" And I was kind of cocky that time, and I said, "No, I think I'm good with my single hand rod." The funny thing is, is obviously I got into spay eventually, and I always remember that because you were you yeah. were you were correct. So I want to I want to just uh, give well, you a shout out there and, and say you guys were obviously ahead of. The game yeah we you know i've had in all the years of guiding steelhead i've had a few people come in with single-handed rods i teach them how to spade cast they never ask for the single-handed rod back no. again because no. spade casting just makes makes it so much more fun it to does. be out there it's a whole nother yeah. thing so all right well we'll send everybody to shootsangler.com okay. if they have questions and yeah amy thanks for uh, sticking around here this has been great yeah. and great uh, chat great yeah. chat and uh I'm glad your COVID test wasn't wasn't hard on you either. No, I didn't even feel it. it I was mean, like, not boom. test your COVID yeah. vaccine. Yeah. No, no, I was surprised. Yeah. I'm feeling good this morning. So, uh, all right, Excellent. Amy, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Thanks, Dave. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes and all the links we cover, just go to webflyswing.com/slash/two-fourteen. That's two one four. If you get a chance, head over to uh, wetflyswing.com slash live, and you can check out the next live podcast we're doing. Uh, we're doing these podcasts live, but we're also recording them. So if you don't have a chance to um, you know, join it, you can hear it later, as always. But it is a good chance to get up on stage and actually raise your hand, and you can come up on stage with the guest and uh, ask a question live right there and, and chit-chat a little bit back and forth. So we're just slowly building into it, but it's been a lot of fun. Um, Want to give you a heads up next week, next Tuesday morning, uh, Bob Clay is here to share some insight into the bamboo spay rod. He's got one of the nicest, uh, cleanest bamboo rod companies out there, and he kind of digs into it all, uh, coming to us from BC. Uh, if you get a chance, uh, you can just click subscribe right now on your app of choice. Uh, I guess subscribe or follow, and you'll get updated Tuesday right away when that's live. That's the best way to do it if you haven't uh, followed or subscribed to us on your uh, podcast app of choice. That's all I have for you today. That's a wrap. I want to thank you for uh, listening in all the way till the end here. This has been amazing. Always uh, appreciate that. I know I'm the type of person that tends to just listen all the way through. Um, I like to kind of clean things off, let them go through. And then once they finish completely, they kind of get, I think, removed from your app, depending on what you use. So it's kind of clean and you're ready for the next one. So uh, like I said, we got a good one coming next week as well. Thanks again and hope to maybe catch you uh, on the river or online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.